0: Welcome, all you lovely fellow time travellers. It's great to have you with me, uh, to know that I'm not hurtling through history on my own, but we're all doing it as a family. Great big thanks to everyone who signed up to my Patreon site, which is part of what makes it possible for this podcast to always have been and to always be free. So that the help and support provided by your involvement on the Patreon site, well, I do really appreciate it. Couldn't do it without you, and all my thanks. If you're not a member and you want to join, go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver. Every week you get a new exclusive video, which I film here at my home in Stirling. The films are an eclectic mix. They're about how history and present day events collide uh, and reflect one another, inform one another. Some of my own philosophy of life is thrown in for good measure, God help us. Hopefully the product is thought-provoking. That's really what Paul and I aim for anyway. Okay, it's now time for this week's Love Letter to the British Isles as the clamour for representation is answered. Cue the music. In this episode, a wave of devolution sweeps across the United Kingdom creating assemblies in Wales and Northern Ireland and a new parliament in Scotland. Places where people will gather to organise their own affairs. On my own patch, at the end of Edinburgh's Royal Mile, construction begins on a grand building. Oak, sycamore, stainless steel and caithness stone. Building to a design that's celebrated, loved and despised in equal measure. The old Scottish Parliament was dissolved in 1707. But with this new building, the song goes on. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. off streamers and welcomed in a new millennium. Where are we this week? Well, we're travelling from one landmark building in London uh, to another of a different sort in Edinburgh. As the balance of power across the whole of the British Isles starts to shift, the foundations are laid to cement a new age in Scotland. Work begins on an ambitious building which will herald the move to devolution. We're walking down the Royal Mile to the Scottish Parliament building. We're uh, in the shadow, if you like, of a very distinctive, modern Scottish landmark, being the Scottish Parliament Building at the foot of the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. It's cheek by jowl with the Palace of Holyrood House, which is one of the Queen's residences. I think it's primarily probably where she stays, if she's in in the Scottish capital. They sort of face towards one another. The Scottish Parliament Building looks at Holyrood, and Holyrood looks at... Scottish Parliament building, and it's it's very modern. It was built at the turn of the millennium. Why did Scotland get a new Parliament building? There was a wave of devolution that swept back and forth up and down the British archipelago, 97, 98, and it meant that by the end of it, there were devolved assemblies, parliaments, in Northern Ireland, in Belfast in Northern Ireland, in Cardiff in Wales and in Edinburgh in Scotland and so each of the the nations got their own parliaments i always i always thought at the time that it was a bit odd that england didn't get one at the same time you know obviously westminster which is the uk parliament sits in london but i, I did always think that the english nation perhaps ought to have got their own assembly at the same time because there are four nations in the united kingdom but i get that's a question for it's a question for another day I, i'm sort of getting sidelined already Devolution, I think, was has been different everywhere in each of the three cases. In Cardiff, it's a very attractive, very simple building that the Welsh built in Cardiff for their assembly. It's down in uh, what I would call the Dockland. It's down on the water. It's right where the coal... We've talked about the coal that was that was coming out of the Rhondda Valley. The Royal Navy deemed it the only coal that they would take for the steam engines of the, of the fleet. It had to be coal from the Rhondda, so... With that and, and everybody else's appetite for coal, Cardiff got very rich and was hugely developed off the back of coal, and then in the nineteen sixties all effectively dried up. There was other coal to be had elsewhere and and the boom times were over. So the devolved Parliament building partly helped to rejuvenate the area from what had been, you know, an area maybe synonymous with decades of dereliction and abandonment. Putting the building there put a little bit of brightness back in Why is it that Wales and Northern Ireland have assemblies but Scotland has a parliament? It's a good question Um, I think Scotland had a parliament before Both the English and the Scottish Parliament were dissolved in 1707 and the British Parliament was created to replace both So Scotland had had a parliament and so it, it was getting its parliament back As far as those who were in favour of it all were concerned it was reclaiming something that had been there before but it was a different situation in in Wales. When Wales joined the United Kingdom there there wasn't the same process of of dissolving a Welsh parliament. It didn't happen in the same way so the devolved assembly in Wales was was more of a new thing rather than a replacement for an old thing. The nationalist... um, Element in in Scotland, we're, we're very keen that it be recognised as the return of Parliament to Edinburgh, where there had been a Parliament before, and now it was back. And others have settled for the name of Assembly. It's semantics in a way. I mean, it, it, it's it's all the same thing. It, it's that each uh, each nation has the opportunity to have separate elections to elect representatives who will come together, assemble. A parliament has French roots, uh, you know, come together to talk, place of talking. They've all got the same responsibilities. It's a semantic difference in, in each place, depending on what that building means to, to people in each different location. They'll, all the nations are different. They've all got their own identities. And Scotland was keen to get a, a parliament because there had been a parliament identified as a parliament. And they wanted it back. <laughs> You know the, the referendum in Wales It was a close run thing It was pretty much 50-50 50% in favour of a devolved assembly 50% that, that didn't think it was a good idea Anyway, it went through Devolved powers are there The, the building that was built down in the docks In Cardiff cost 70000000 million I've been there a few times I've filmed outside it uh, It's very attractive kind of Aesthetically I think it's quite a nice one uh, There was a referendum in Northern Ireland as well and there, they decided whether they would go ahead with the Good Friday Agreement. You know what everyone sort of regards as the peace settlement that brought an end to the Troubles. It was a stronger, seventy-one percent and ninety-four percent in favour of devolution and the go ahead with the Good Friday Agreement. But there's been there's been bother in Northern Ireland that there hasn't been in either Scotland or Wales. The, the powers of the of the Assembly in in Northern Ireland have been suspended from time to time. And Westminster has taken control again because of perceived irregularities in the way business was being conducted and what elected representatives were doing. So it's been a bit of a checker past in Belfast. But really, we're talking about the Scottish one. When the referendum was held in Scotland, it was seventy-four percent in favour of a new parliament. You know, as I say, it was the first parliament in Scotland since seventeen o seven. We've done this one before, you know, remember when St Giles Cathedral played Why Am I So Sad on This My Wedding Day? Because there was this sort of acknowledgement of a feeling of uncertainty. Neither the Scottish general public nor the English general public fancied the the United Parliament in 1707. Scotland felt that it had lost out, that it was getting the kind of furry end of the lollipop stick on the settlement only got a a relative handful of representatives into the UK Parliament and on on the other side England felt they were being married for their money (laughs) by a bride that, that wasn't bringing much to the table. That was the English perception. But either way, in 1707 when the parliaments came together as one, there was ill feeling and hesitancy in the general public. Hence, why am I so sad on this my wedding day? So it it all happened, it's 1997, 1998, it's hard to remember now, but there was a wave of optimism, I suppose you would say, up and down the country. People felt that we had reached the coming of a new era. Obviously, the millennium was coming, which was a a significant turning point. And elsewhere, an an American political scientist called uh, Francis Fukuyama, in 1992, had published a book called The End of History, in which he had suggested that Western liberal democracy, of the sort that we have, was the natural end point of the evolution of all political ideologies everywhere in the world. That no matter how long it might take, and no matter what setbacks there might be along the way, he argued that ultimately it was inevitable that everybody would end up with Western liberal democracy. It might not all happen at the same time, but he suggested it was where the evolution of political ideologies would always end up, which was an an optimistic feeling. There was a feeling that the way we were living in the West was so good in terms of what it could do for the most people that eventually everyone would live like that. So there was that wave of that feeling. And then, say, in 97, 98, there were the referenda on devolution, which were carried in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But there was a bit of a wake-up call coming. But, but we'll get to that. I mean, we should probably we should probably talk about the, the Parliament building, first of all, before we get to the broader themes. There was a competition, really. Architects from, from around the place pitched up with ideas about what the Scottish Parliament building should look like. We already discussed the one in Cardiff, 70 million for the building. By the summer of 1998, the design that had been chosen for Edinburgh... Was uh, by a Spanish architect called Enrique Morales, and there was also a site that had been identified as well. It had previously been occupied by the Scottish and Newcastle Brewery. It was where beer was made for a long time, but but that building had closed, so the site was sort of um, it's like a brownfield post-industrial site that was ripe for redevelopment, and it was it was regarded as being in a in an important place. As I say, you know, in the vicinity of the Palace of Holyrood House in the shadow of uh, Salisbury Crags, you know, the great uh, wall of volcanic rock that is synonymous in many people's minds with the geology of Edinburgh. It was then a long and agonising process that, didn't, that ended up not showing anyone in a good light. It should have opened in 2001. It was green lit in 1998 and it, it should have been opened in 2001 and the it was pitched at £40 million. Pounds. That was what it was supposed to cost. But it was finally open for business by 2004, so three years past the original deadline, and the final bill was £400 million. Pounds. So it, it went up in cost ten times, by an order of magnitude more more expensive than it was supposed to be. There was a lot of ill-feeling. There's no getting away from it. By the time the thing was opening, there was a lot of ill-feeling because people people who'd been against devolution in the first place said, look, look, first thing they've done, build a building for themselves and it's cost ten times as much as it was supposed to. So it was an ominous start, really, for a new undertaking, added to which it split opinion in terms of the way it looked. And Morales, uh, he was from Catalonia, Which is interesting because Catalonia, as as many people know, is a region that's synonymous with looking for independence from the greater Spain. So when you know about the politics in Scotland, obviously, where there's a a very strong and vocal pro-independence lobby, you know, it might have been seen as portentous that the winning architect was from a separatist part of Spain. Uh, But in any event, he didn't live to see the completion of his project. He died of a brain tumour on the 3rd of July 2000 he was just 45 still just a comparatively young guy but you know obviously he was dead before the original deadline of 2001 and it was several years after his death before his creation was complete it was said i think he had said as well that he took some of his inspiration if you if you see the aerial views of the parliament building it's got a very distinctive roof it's not a pitched roof, it's not a flat roof. It's very distinctive. It's lots of little kind of dome-like shapes. He's said to have taken his inspiration from the up... To, if you go to Lindisfarne, now Lindisfarne's been in the, the love letter to the British Isles, and we've talked there about how the architect Edwin Lutyens refurbished, redeveloped the old ruined castle. He was brought in to turn the ruin into you know, what became a kind of a second home for a very wealthy publisher. And... On the shore at Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne's tiny and down on the shore close by the castle there are these upturned fishing boat hulls that have been that were repurposed as storage sheds they've been used by fishermen and, and others but they're, they're very distinctive they're up, upside down boats and it's supposed that Morales took his inspiration for the roof from the, the shape of all these upturned fishing boats <laughs> I mean, it's an eccentric design, really, to say the least. He worked in all sorts of building materials. There's oak, there's sycamore, there's stainless steel, there's caithness stone. Inside and out, there's all sorts of imagery. People have claimed to see things in the imagery that may or may not be there. I think Morales is probably quite open to the idea of people seeing what they wanted to see in the building. I'm sure maybe that's possibly in the mindset of architects, that they want people to, to bring their own interpretation to, to work. Uh, but people see saltires. That's the the Scottish flag, the, the white cross against the blue background. The windows are very distinctive. They have these kind of, um, kind of shutters-come-blinds shapes on the outside of the windows. And they've been likened to all sorts of things. It's been said that they, they're supposed to suggest curtains that have been pulled back, to let people see in, so it's sending out the message of openness and no secrets. Some people said that when he was walking around the site, he used to carry the controller for an old Skellextric. Can you remember the shape of a Skellextric controller with a wee trigger on it? And apparently he used to walk about just flicking the trigger, something to fiddle with, and it's got the, the shapes over the window. They do look a little bit like the shape of a skeletric controller, but that's anecdotal. People just suggested it. There was even a suggestion that a very famous painting in Edinburgh, I think, I think, it's, I think it's in the, the National Portrait Gallery, and it's of the Reverend Robert Walker skating on Duddingston Loch, which is a, a loch in the heart of the city. He's wearing his clergyman black suit, and he's got on like plus fours, like britches with knee high white socks. And the shape that he's striking, he's got one leg out behind him. And one leg down on the ice, and people have suggested that that's where the shape comes from. So there's all there's all sorts of fascinating speculation going on, but it's all a product of the fact that when you look at the building, it is it, there's all sorts of eccentricities about it. There's hardly a vertical ninety degree corner on it. It's all different sorts of shapes, and it has. It has absolutely divided opinion. There's those that love it, those that hate it, and and lots of people in between. In 2005, it was awarded the Royal Institute of British Architects Stirling Prize. And at the same time, it was separately shortlisted for demolition by viewers of a Channel 4 documentary series about the worst architecture in Britain. So, you know, it polarised opinion. Some people thought it was fantastic. Other people didn't. The, the Northern Irish Assembly sits in a pre existing building. They located into a historic building. So they didn't build a new building. But the, the Welsh version, 70 million, the Scottish version, 400 million. So there's quite a disparity, quite a discrepancy there. But you know, as previously mentioned, looking back on the world that voted for devolution and then the world that commissioned and built those various buildings on that wave of optimism and positivity and feeling that liberal democracy was just in the natural order of things, it got a very abrupt, well, a wake-up call on the 9-11, the 11th of September 2001. Obviously, the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, were destroyed by Al-Qaeda. They flew planes into them and the, and, the, and they came down and We started learning about the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and all the rest of it. And, you know, after all that optimism, at the end of the 20th century, the first decades of the third millennium, that optimism is gone. And look, look where we are now. And so that idea that by the turn of the third millennium that we would be living in a world of peace, the Pope, as the millennium dawned, had given a sermon from his balcony in the Vatican saying that he hoped that we could look forward to a thousand years of peace, well, we didn't even make it through the first year before there was trouble and Francis Fukuyama and the end of history his idea has been a bit misquoted in as much as he wasn't saying that it was the end of history in 1992 when he wrote the book he's continued really to defend his hypothesis and say that he was simply making the case that western liberal democracy is where you end up eventually, that Whatever political ideology or or theocracy or whatever else you come from, whether it takes a hundred years or a thousand years, you'll end up with liberal democracy. And he did say, you know, that there could be setbacks and you could get the activities of strongmen and dictators and the rest of it that could get in the way of it and could set a country back for a century or whatever but he has become a bit of a lightning rod for having had the temerity to suggest that in 1992 as the second millennium drew to its conclusion that we had reached a turning point in history he has taken pelters for that the truth is, I mean, it's hard not to be despondent on a day like today the ever-spinning wheel of time was not finished and war is all around us Look what we've had in the, in the 2000s. Look what's happening in Yemen. Look what's happening all over the African continent. Look at Afghanistan and all the rest of it. It's been war and war and war again. And it's hard not to be disconsolate sometimes. When the new Scottish Parliament building was opened, who was in charge? That first of all Parliament was run by the Labour Party and Scottish Labour had always bestrode Scottish politics like a behemoth and the Labour Party believed that they would always be the dominant force in Scottish politics because they had been for as long as anyone could remember and the version, the version of devolution that was set in place in, in Scotland, there wasn't supposed to be a majority in Holyrood. It was a system of proportional representation which was supposed to ensure that there would never be one party with an outright majority. It wasn't supposed to work like that. But the Scottish National Party, who are avowedly determined to get independence for Scotland, to break Scotland out of the United Kingdom, they have, well, you might say they've gamed the system and they have a majority in all but name. At the moment they're in alliance with the Green Party and they dominate even without the Greens, the, the Scottish National Party dominates politics in Scotland in a way that Labour once dominated. You might say that the Scottish National Party are even more dominant than Labour ever were. And it, it doesn't look as though anyone will break the SNP's hold on Holyrood and, and Scotland any time soon. And so with that has come this never atmosphere in Scotland. A referendum in 2014 to address whether or not a majority of Scots wanted to be in or out of the union, and the union vote won by 52% to 48%. It's worth, I mean, it's worth paying attention to the fact that 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 sounds close, 52-48. But of the 32 local authorities in Scotland, 28 local authorities' referenda returned a pro-union result. And by far the bulk of the support for independence is in Glasgow. That's where most pe- most people in Scotland live in the central belt. And Glasgow's the single biggest centre of population, and that has been a an SNP stronghold. But when you take in Scotland as a, as, a, as an entirety, you know you go out to the Western Isles and Orkney and Shetland and the Highlands and the Borders and all the rest of it. All these places voted for the union. But it remains. There's even now, as I speak to you, there are perpetual calls from the from the Scottish National Party for a second referendum. They want to go again. Even although at the time of the of the settlement for the first referendum, it was supposed to be a once in a a once in a generation vote, and most people would say a generation is probably twenty to twenty five years. But you know that's been a, a, a consequence and. And really all over, all over Europe, there are little fires of separatism burning. Catalonia, which is the home country of Enric Morales, the, the architect of the Scottish Parliament building. There's uh, endless calls there uh, to break away from Spain. The Brexit decision, which broke Britain out of the European Union. So that was a, that was a kind of an independence movement all on its own. There are separatist groups uh, in the Czech Republic, uh, amongst the Hungarians, amongst the Poles, uh, and the, the European Union is. Uh, you know, some some people look on at it and say that it is fractured, and that there are many people within the European Union who would now want out. That there are factions within various European Union member countries saying they want out of the European Union. So that idea of everyone sort of coming together, you know, that end of history, Western liberal democracy it's it, rather than being something peaceful it has gone on to be something really rather volatile. you know the Basques and Corsicans <laughs> there are, there's lots of there's lots of calls so we're, we're not living in any kind of settled world and if that needed to be made any clearer than what's happening in Ukraine, you know it, it writ large uh, that we live in tempestuous volatile, political times. Nationalism is undoubtedly on the rise. All over Europe, there's nationalist movements on the rise and, and the longer term consequences of that, well, they remain to be seen. But, you know, the Scottish Parliament building, it, I, I put it in the love letter because it's important. It's important to be aware of it. It's important to, and I think it's important to go there. I think it's important to go and visit the, to go and visit the building. If you love it, you love it. If you don't, you can always turn your back on it and look at the Palace of Holyrood House, which is a very traditional, a very traditional building. Uh, that might be more to your liking. And there's always Salisbury Crags, which is I defy anyone not to be moved and impressed by Salisbury Crags. It's the heart of a burnt-out volcano that looms over Edinburgh. But it's just it's, I think it's just always worth remembering that when the ink was drying on the document that dissolved the old parliament in Scotland in 1707, the Earl of Seafield, who was the Chancellor of Scotland at the time, as, the ink was, as he was writing on it, he said to have declared there's an end of an old song, that something was over. But quite clearly the song goes on, and there are many, many more verses yet to be written. Soft rounded hills, lochs and woodland In a county of gentle character A boy always asking questions An insatiable curiosity Colour, light, the sky All obsessed him The first person to identify the scientific primacy Of red, blue and yellow A mind always making strides And beautiful conceptual leaps. His groundbreaking work Stood on the shoulders of Newton And also gave a leg up to Albert Einstein. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter and please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's love letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music's by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucien, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by All Studios and the graphics are by Paul Ploughman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.